Welcome back to Pure Curiosity. I'm Iris McAlpin, and this week we have a little bit of a plot twist. So last episode, I said Stephanie Covington Armstrong was coming on next, but after we recorded a conversation, I felt like it was a better fit for my other podcast. Yes, I have another podcast and it's called Life Beyond Recovery. It features interviews with eating disorder survivors. So if you want to learn more about eating disorders in general or hear Stephanie discuss the roles that poverty and trauma can play in fueling eating disorders, among quite a few other things, head to beyondrecovery.life to sign up and receive those episodes directly in your inbox. It's free and I won't spam you with a bunch of other emails. So if it interests you, then head over to that website and sign up. So for today's episode, I am so excited to introduce y'all to my friend, Dr. Adam Ghazali. You may have already heard of him. He's a rock star in the neuroscience community and gives lectures around the world. Adam is a professor of neurology, physiology, and psychiatry at UCSF and is both a medical doctor and a PhD neuroscientist, so he definitely knows what's up. Last year, he published a book called The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World, and he's on the forefront of personalized digital medicine. And if you don't know what that means, keep listening because you're about to find out. So the implications of his work for mental health, learning, and self-awareness are huge, and I think you're going to be really inspired by what he's up to. So enjoy. So Adam, you are this neuroscientist, doctor, polymath extraordinaire, and I think where I want to start, um, you shared your story with me over the holidays, and I think that's a good place to start, not only because it sort of provides context for the work that you're doing now, but I also feel like it's an inspiring story. Your tenacity and what it took for you to get where you are now will be something people want to hear about. Sounds good. Thanks yeah. for having me here. You're welcome. So, just begin? Yeah. How did you become a scientist? So, I grew up in Queens. Um, I'm the first member of my family to go to college. Um, not that my, my parents weren't education-driven um, or positive. They just grew up without the means uh, and the life conditions to go. And So, I didn't know any scientists or doctors growing up, um, but I at a very early age, just through some random events, um, latched on to this idea of being being a scientist. Um, and my parents sort of, you know, supported it because they thought that was really exciting. And then um, I, I guess because I was just stubborn, I'm not quite <laughs> sure, I just never let go of the idea. And people were like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? People when I was like eight, I think it was around, I was around seven years old. I was like, I want to be a scientist. And uh, I didn't really exactly know what that was. Uh, but... <laughs> I was sticking with that plan. <laughs> and then when I uh, uh, saw Cosmos, I was watching, you know, Carl Sagan's series with my dad, and I was pretty young then, but probably, you know, a bit older, maybe you know, 10 or 11, and that just really solidified it, and uh, that's all that I can imagine being. And at that time, it was more oriented towards, like, astronomy and Cosmos uh, type of career, um, but that, you know... I never deviated uh, at all, um, you know, with that second reinforcement. And so when you first heard that, was it from sci-fi, like comic books? You know, where did that initial I want to be a scientist come from? Oh, so I was uh, I was pretty wild as a kid. Um, <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> yeah, some things don't change. And um, I just learned how to control it or direct it uh, in a positive, uh, you know, outcome. But uh, I was... My parents were having a party and all their friends were over and I had this Superman water gun and I was running around shooting everyone with it to their dismay. <laughs> and um, I, I was like, this thing is amazing. How does it work? And my, my dad says, well, uh, I don't know, but scientists know. And I was like, oh, wow. He goes, yeah, that's that's impressive, right? And I was like, yeah. I was like, I want to be, be a scientist. <laughs> and that was like the first time I heard that term. It's like okay, this is this is the future for me. That's cool, and it wasn't just an automatic thing. Like you had to go really, really out of your way to make that happen. So you mentioned that you had to 
be on the train for long hours. So talk a yeah. little bit about that. Well, as I was finishing, um, I grew up in an area in Queens where 50% of the people weren't finishing high school. And so it wasn't a very gener generally academic area. Um, and uh, there was a school, um, if you're a New Yorker, you know about it, called Bronx High School of Science, Bronx Science, what we call it. And it was really far <laughs> from me. I was in Southern Queens. I wasn't even in Northern Queens. And so um, you take a test, sort of like an SAT to get in, and I, and I got accepted. And it involved two hours of commuting each way, um, going through four boroughs on the subway, you know, a bus to get to the subway, um, and then a walk afterwards. And um, it was just, uh, you know, I, I think back on it, and there's like a, no way I would commute. Like, I don't even like going two hours for almost anything, <laughs> going to like Napa. Uh, but I think, you know, as just naive as a kid, I just really wanted to go. My parents were like, not discouraging me, but you know, certainly not persuading me. They realized it was a big burden. Subway was pretty dangerous. I was mugged several times on, oh, wow. the, on the subway um, at knife point, and you know, it was, it was sort of a different time in New York back then, um, in the in the eighties, early eighties. And um, but this was my path to being a scientist, and you know, at least that's what I thought it was. And so I did it. You know, I used to just sleep on the train. Because I got up at like 5.30 in the morning to go to high school. But, uh, yeah. You know. I was not even close to that discipline in high school. <laughs> yeah. It didn't feel like discipline. I, I understand why you say that because it sounds it from like an adult perspective. But for me, it was just like what I had to do. I, You know, I wasn't like anything that I'd brag about or it's just like how I got to school. I had That's what I had to do. Um, and, you know... Uh, it was a really intense environment, Bronx Science. I mean, I would say, given how many schools, like, you know, institutions uh, that I've been in throughout my life now, which is a large number, was probably the most intense um, environment I've ever been in, um, just in terms of competitiveness. Uh, you know, and I was like working at Columbia when I was a sophomore doing research projects, and, and I was in pretty deep when I was uh, a kid, and, you know, didn't drink, didn't did really, you know, kind of sex. I was like, really <laughs> did I like front loaded all of that stuff and then made up for it in college. <laughs> but I was like really a very, very academic kid. Yeah. And then when did the interest in the brain and how that works come in? It was not until I was in college um, when I deviated from sort of, a, well, the astronomy thing changed in high school when I realized that I didn't love math <laughs> um, and I liked biology and chemistry. And so I went to university um, as a biochemistry major. Um, but I did go with the plan of going to, uh, to medical school. And somewhere along the line uh, of me uh, doing research at, in, in college, I realized that I wanted to continue a research career. And so I made the decision to go and get both an MD and a PhD. Um, but I didn't even you know, take a psychology class. I had no oh, wow. familiarity with the brain at all. And I was actually taking one of the very few humanities classes that I had to take, which in retrospect is really sad, because um, I would totally go back to college now and just take all humanities, right. and I love it now. But um, it, and th that class was called History of the Future which is really cool. So what the class structure was, was to review uh, historical events and place them in the context of predicting what the future might be like. Wow. Um, and it was a very popular class, largely because we watched movies like Planet of the Apes, and Blade <laughs> Runner, and, you know, all of these science fiction movies to try to under, you know, again, to look into the future from the perspective of the past. And one lesson was on nanotechnology and the brain. Um, and I was like, and the nanotechnology, I was like, okay, that's interesting. But I was like, the brain. And it was like really like, you know, like a cartoon character light bulb went off. I went to the <laughs> library. I took out like 20 books and carried them home, you know, just like it would be also in a cartoon, like piled <laughs> up to my, my chin and all on neuroscience and just started reading it. And I was like, it really, in that one single day, I was like, I want to study the brain. That's you know, 30 years ago. That's amazing. And now here we are at UCSF in your lab, Neuroscape. So can you tell us a little bit about what you guys are working on right now? Yeah, so my career, you know, it's been a, a long time. I started doing, you know, neuroscience research as a grad student in 
92. Uh, so it's been many years and my career has, and my focus has, I wouldn't say it's changed, but it's expanded. Um, I started by studying uh, the aging brain, and we still do a lot of work on the aging brain now, so that hasn't hasn't varied at all. Um, but my work uh, back in grad school was more traditional neuroscience, slicing up brains, looking under a microscope, how do things work. Um, after I did um, a residency in neurology, so I did all my clinical training, I really wanted to study the human brain. I wanted to have as rapid a leap from the lab to actually helping people. And so when I moved to California um, from the East Coast for the first time, which was in 2002, I went to Berkeley for three years and I learned the techniques of human neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, functional MRI, EG, cognitive paradigms, you know, borrowed from psychology. And so cognitive neuroscience is this merger between psychology and neuroscience. Essentially, it's how does the mind work um, when it comes to its mechanisms in the brain. Um, and that is how I started my lab here at UCSF in 2005. So I've been here, I guess, my 13th year now. And um, my work, I would say, was relatively traditional for cognitive neuroscience. I still st studied the aging brain, but moved on to, understanding, to wanting to understand and, and, and researching neural networks, how brain areas interact dynamically to lead to higher order abilities like attention and memory. And then I became fascinated with interference in the brain. How does uh, distraction, multitasking, degrade performance, degrade our perception, degrade our memory, degrade our decision making? How does that change with aging? And that is what I started building as my career, my you know unique career after a postdoc as a faculty member. Um, and we were doing well. We've had lot, lots of really nice publications and we were contributing to a new literature, um, understanding interference in a sophisticated way, not just from a real-world performance way, um, how does distraction degrade, how we, you know, drive and, and things that matter a lot, but really what happens in the brain and what are the limitations of our brain that allow us not to multitask and how it all gets worse as we get older, which is what we were finding. Right. And that was sort of the transition. It was, I, I started getting invited to give talks to the public, which I do all the time now. Um, but that was the beginning of it, and I was speaking for AARP. Um, right, <laughs> which is how you became the AARP rock star. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's what they once told me in a mixed compliment. No, they said, you're a rock star for old people. I was like, oh, that's, that's Thanks, wonderful. I guess. That's, that's, that's great. Um, but I was giving these lectures in bigger and bigger um, lecture halls because, you know, a lot of the ARP was focused on, you know, how to manage your finances, how to interact with your grandkids. And I was giving one of the, the few lectures on the time on memory and, and the brain and attention. And lo and behold, to ARP surprise, but not to mine, older adults really care about this stuff. Yeah. And so as I was giving these talks to like these large, you know, seas of silver hair, <laughs> I was... Uh, Someone said, oh, that's like the silver tsunami. I was like, oh, that's a cool term. <laughs> and um, I was given these lectures, you know, and I, I, I do a lot of academic speaking. So I'm generally, um, you know, my, my general experience is that when I talk about the topic of distraction and the brain and aging and tell about all the cool approaches we develop with fMRI, the audience is like, wow, that's clever. That's interesting. Um, and, and when I started speaking for public, you know, for the public, uh, you know, non-scientists, they would have that reaction along the way. But at the end of the talk, they'd be like, that's it? You know, <laughs> that's, you know, that's like watching a movie and like all the characters die and the credits roll. You're like, that was horrible. You know, it's just, it did not, you know, give them hope. It was These are yeah. just not things that were part of my research program at the time. And so I realized that that's not the story I wanted to tell the rest of my career. You know, we have this, tendency as scientists to pursue what I would call spiral reductionism, where you basically find something, it could be something massively exciting, and then you look at a piece of it and say, now I'm going to explain this, and now this, and you go down and down and down and down until at one point you're the only person that cares about what you found, <laughs> even if it started a place. This is a very natural a tendency. And I wanted to like flip it around and go in the opposite direction instead of going deeper down um, into an explanation, I wanted to say, can we turn this story around and say, how do we use the methodology 
of neuroscience, the insights that we had gained in our own research to come up with approaches not just to report the bad news of what happens as we get older and how distraction and multitasking degrade our performance, but to see if we can improve brain function. Um, and understand it along the way. You wind up getting that for free, essentially. Um, not for free, but it, it's part of the process. You can sort of double bottom line and learn about the brain, also help the brain. And so that's what we do now. That's in, you know from the high level view where I don't. Cons I started as a molecular neuroscientist and became a cognitive neuroscientist, and I'd say now I'm a translational neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. My ultimate mission is to help people to help understand their brains better in a more real-world manner, and to help improve their brain function to better their quality of life. That is the underlying goal of our center here. So my yeah. lab is, is now a center called Neuroscape, and that's what we try to do. Now, all of us, it, yeah. it, was, slow, it was a process switching over from the more basic goals, but that's what we're, we're trying to accomplish. Very cool. And last year, you published a book called The Distracted Mind. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, how multitasking makes it more difficult for us to perform tasks and how that degrades over time. Can you give just a brief sort of like keynote um, or um, sorry, key point sort of analysis of that? Yeah. So I sort of had to be dragged into the process of writing a book, kicking <laughs> and screaming, A, because um, I do a lot of writing anyway, and I enjoy speaking in front of people, um, film and stage presentations. I just don't want to be alone writing all the time. Um, also, the distracted mind was like yes, you know, yesterday's story for me. That was like a chapter that I hadn't closed, but I moved on from. And so to write an entire book about something that was not, we weren't, act, I wasn't actively researching anymore was a little bit of a chore. But I did realize that I never told this whole story in one written format. Um, and also I sort of had an idea that it could be told from an evolutionary perspective. So the subtitle of The Distracted Mind is Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World, where I try to look at all the aspects of our brain that are very ancient, that have not evolved very much, and then how technology has challenged our ancient brains um, to come up with uh, a sort of thesis of why we have a distracted mind. Why do we engage in technology in the insane multitasking <laughs> manner that we all do? Um, why are we, if you don't want to call it addicted, at least obsessed with it um, to the exclusion of many other things? And so that um, that was sort of reinvigorated for me to tell that story, which was which was just um, you know emerging in my own thoughts. So. Um, you know, that, that's essentially what the distracted mind is. It's uh, a lot of my research on, you know, for example, we have work that shows that attending and ignoring are not actually two sides of the same coin. Hmm. That you could be focusing just fine, but what you might be failing to do is to ignore. Um, they don't just travel with each other. And we actually show that older adults, their problem with memory is an attention problem and not an attention problem in terms of focus. They actually focus like they're 20. What they don't do effectively is ignore. Hmm. So they're, they're not filtering yeah. as effectively, even though they might be focusing. And so that's like an example of something that I took from our uh, academic research and put it in, in a book for, you know, the public. Um, and then, of course, uh, how does all of this uh, intersect with modern times. And for that, my, my co-author, Larry Rosen, who's a field psychologist, you know, so I'm a laboratory neuroscientist, but you can't tell the story of the distracted mind without talking about Facebook and education and, and all of these real world things. So a lot of the focus is on that. And then of course, how do we manage it? How do we deal with it from a behavioral aspect, meaning how do you make more informed decisions based upon an understanding of your brain and technology so that you could use technology in a more healthy way, right? Not put the genie back in the bottle. It's not happening. It's, right. it's here and it's increasing. How do you manage it better? And then the topic, and then I got to, you know, sort of pivot to the topic that's most interesting to me, which is what I spent my entire life working on, is how do we, again, tell the flip side story? How do we look at technology as a tool to improve our function, to better our lives, um, to make us higher performing um, in you know numerous ways, um, as opposed to degrading that, um, and that's what we work on in Neuroscape. So it's sort of, it's this the book sort of mimics my last fifteen years of starting with the the challenge and then thinking about technology as a solution. 
Well, that's a perfect segue to the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is NeuroRacer. Yes. So what's happening with that right now? Yeah, so in 2008 is when I started having those experiences on stage where I realized that I want to do things to help the brain and not just describe why it's vulnerable. And so I was thinking, what, what, what can I do? And as a neurologist, the first thing we think about are pills, mm-hmm. drugs, pharmaceuticals, molecules, that all, right. all saying the same thing. And, you know, that's how we treat our patients. When you have uh, an attention or a memory problem, or you have an emotional regulation problem, you have depression, anxiety, you get a pill. And that's really the mainstay of treatment, right? Everything else has sort of been marginalized as alternative. And I, you know, I grew up in that system. And so we actually did some work using the medication, the the drug that we use to treat Alzheimer's disease, which is a cholinesterase inhibitor called Aricept, that has modest effects in some Alzheimer's patients. And we tried on healthy older adults to improve their attention, their resistance of distraction, exactly what we've been studying. And we found you know, barely any effect. I mean, mm-hmm. there was something there and we had a publication out of it. So, you know, we checked all the academic boxes, right. but I didn't want to just, you know, do ivory tower work that just lives in journals. I want to really do something. And this wasn't helping people at the level that I was satisfied with. So I think probably, you know, and I, I don't know, it's always easy to try to, you know, reverse engineer why you make certain decisions. But, you know, I live in San Francisco and my friends have started companies like Uber and Twitter and Instagram. And I was inspired by the innovation of, you know, the Bay Area and and Silicon Valley. And I realized that I wanted to innovate at that level, um, which we just don't see in neuroscience. And so I came up with an idea of creating a technology that can improve brain function, in in our case, attention in older adults, by delivering an experience. Um, And the interesting thing about it is that while it uses modern technology, it's actually a very ancient idea. You know, contemplative traditions and practices like mindfulness and meditation have been around thousands of years. And they're experiential treatments, essentially, to improving how your mind functions. Um, And modern-day education, therapy, all rely on experiences. The challenges of experiential treatments is that they are not very reproducible. It really depends a lot on who the mentor, the teacher, the therapist is. And therefore, it's a, so there's a lot of variability. What that makes it really hard to do is to do randomized controlled trials Mm -hmm. in a very tight way with experiential treatments. That is the asset that the pharmaceutical industry has is that, you know, it might not be very effective and it might have tons of side effects, but it's consistent. You could give the same dosage. Um, and of course, there's lots of individual vari- variability in how people respond to it, but at least allows you to do randomized controlled trials in a way that regulators and insurance companies and practitioners have grown to accept as what you need to have medicine. And so the idea was, can we take an experience and figure out how to target it and deliver it reproducibly and in a personalized manner um, so that it can be studied at the highest level of empirical research. So and, wait, can I ask you a quick yeah, question? Please. So it's interesting. I've never heard anybody explain it quite like that. So it sounds like the reason why drugs are the most common sort of course of action, especially at the beginning, is not necessarily because they're better, but because they're the only thing that can really be readily reproducible for clinical tests? That's my view. That's what I believe. That that makes so much sense, though. And it it has been the success of that industry, that multi-billion dollar giant industry that dominates all of medicine. I mean, you ask people, and I've done this, what is medicine? And they they might literally say drugs. That's not true at all. Yeah. You know, medicine is, is any tool that appro- that helps us improve our health. But that, that industry is so dominant that it, it has really, you know, um, uh, you know, created that, you know, misperception. Um, but that's why I believe that, that, that there has been such success in that being standard of care. Makes sense. Um, and so the idea here was can an experience, which 
will benefit the brain. We know that. I mean, plasticity, the ability of our brain to modify itself, structure, chemistry, function, every level of resolution is is driven by experience, right? It's the entire basis of learning. This is completely non-contentious point in neuroscience. The, the, the devil's in the details, though. It's how do you create an experience that can do so in a way that's meaningful and sustainable. Um, and in our case, something that's reproducible and deliverable and accessible, personalizable. These were our goals. And given all that complexity, we arrived, or you know, I arrived at the time with the idea of building it as a video game. <laughs> so it sounds like sort of, you know, at least to a lot of my colleagues at the time, including the NIH, maybe <laughs> frivolous, like a video game is an entertainment tool. But the idea of... You know, a video game delivers an experience. So it is already an experience delivering vehicle. But if you build a video game in a manner that it is reading out your performance metrics in real time, and through the game mechanics, activating different brain networks, and through adaptivity, challenging you right at the edge of your ability, so it's not so hard that it's frustrating and not so easy that it's boring, you could create a reproducible, personalized, targeted deliverer of experiences. And because it can be fun and engaging, which is what you have when you build a video game the right way, people could be immersed in it, which is what I think is critical to change the brain, and they could sustain with it for a long period of time. And so that's the con you know the conceptual basis for why a video game. The video game is really a delivery tool, like a pill is a delivery tool of a high-level experience that's activating networks in a way that we have never accomplished with a molecule before, ever. Yeah. And that's why we have such high side effects. So that's that's a little bit of the idea behind NeuroRacer, which was to build a video game to challenge older adults in this what we call a closed loop, which is what I described, using performance to drive the experience uh, in real time, and then to see if we actually could confirm a hypothesis that we could benefit older adults outside of the game itself. That's really, really cool. So the game is actually almost changing in a sense as you're playing it to deliver the sort of, I don't even know what you call that, like the healing sort of scenario that you yeah. need. How do you describe that? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the big picture is that we currently have pharmaceutical medicine that delivers molecules. That's, that's what we use. That's mm -hmm. drugs. The idea here is that we would have a digital medicine that delivers experiences. And because of our design principles that we create games, um, how, we, how we build these games, with this closed loop system, we could do so in a way that uh, challenges you right at the level of your ability, which we think maximally harnesses the brain's plasticity so that it changes itself, essentially. Yeah. But it, it does have to be activated appropriately, and that's where the game mechanics come in. And then it needs the pressure so that it's constantly pushed to the next level. That's where the closed-loop system comes in. So sort of the same way, you know, if I took a pill and you took a pill, it would affect our brains differently. If I were to play the game and you were to play the game, it would look slightly different for each of us. Right, but the pill doesn't change. Right. That's the problem, one of the problems. The problems with medicine, current medicine as delivered through drugs, are, are a lot. <laughs> um, the two massive ones are that they're not targeted to neural networks. They're targeted to neurotransmitter systems for the most part. And therefore, and that's a, a blunt instrument. I mean, it's like a sledgehammer. It's not selective to what you're trying to improve. So you have to increase the doses to very high levels to get the effect you want, and then you get tons of side effects. The other problem is that they're not personalized. Um, you make the advice on what dose you start with based on a population study that's no, nothing about your brain. And then you might not adjust that dose to months later, driven by you know, subjective impressions of how much it helped or hurt them. That's an open loop system. Yeah. The closed loop is that now we have better targeting because an experience activates network selectively. That's how the brain works. And w with the closed loop adaptive system, the medicine is always changing as you change. And so we have those, you know, that massive opportunity to create um, a, a new type of medicine um, given modern technology that delivers experiences. And then you get these other benefits, like you could remotely monitor compliance, which is very hard to do with a sure. pill also, that you could always collect data in the real world, share it with a doctor or a patient or a teacher or, you know, your parent. And so... 
more opportunities and, and, and then it's accessible and could be more affordable. So there's just a long list of advantages to creating digital medicine in this way. But we you know, sort of were just starting, you know, a new field, you know, 2008 and we're still on the pathway. And how close are you to having this be a prescribable treatment? So that story, um, so NeuroRacer, so just to finish up NeuroRacer, so NeuroRacer was a video game pro, uh, project that I started based on all the um, ideas that I shared. And I built it with friends of mine from LucasArts um, because I knew that we could not build a video game here at UCSF. We didn't have that skill set. We built the game, took us a year to build this as a closed loop. And then we did multiple years of research and published it in Nature in 2013 as a cover of the journal. Had an awesome pun called Game Changer. And it really, <laughs> really set us off on this path of, okay, what's next, right? So from an academic point of view, it's like, check Nature paper, tenure, right. you know, I should be done. I should be now studying more details of the game and spiraling down. But again, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to turn it around and say, okay, that was a great academic path um, from idea to peer-reviewed publication. How do we now get this into people's lives? How do we turn this into medicine? And I realized that we couldn't do that at UCSF. In order to accomplish that goal, we had to work with industry. And you know, there are benefits and challenges on both sides of the table, but I, you know, we could not create a scalable product in a laboratory. Um, and so I started a company with friends from LucasArts as well as a healthcare venture group in Boston called Pure Tech um, and built a unique healthcare company called Achille um, and Achille Interactive uh, licensed the patent that I filed that describes the engine of NeuroRacer. So the patent is not a game. The patent is a game engine that's owned by UCSF. That was the first patent I filed. Achille has a license to it. UCSF owns it. I'm the inventor. That's our three-way relationship around this. Achille has taken the game engine and built a way better game than NeuroRacer. Um, uh, because we have a full team of AAA video game professionals who this is their full-time job. It's not people volunteering from right. LucasArts for like beer and sushi to help <laughs> us out. It's like it's their, it's their job. And over the years, uh, you know, built, realizing the necessity of the game engine at the core to have wrapped around it, um, even embedded into it, art, music, story, multiple timescales of reward was, was part of what we created on um, how to use the cloud, both for a server and analytics support. And, you know, it was just a lot of technology went into what to, a, you know, a participant in one of our research studies looks like a video game, really beautiful, great video game. And now Achille um, has gone, you know, has multiple, like over a dozen clinical trials that are oh, wow. looking at how this game, which came from their eraser, delivering that experiential treatment could have positive benefit in multiple clinical populations. So from autism, traumatic brain injury, depression, anxiety, multiple sclerosis, early Alzheimer's, early Parkinson's disease. And now our biggest trial ever is completed for pediatric ADHD. And so this was a phase three trial. Now phase three is the trial, is a type of research study that you do before you submit to the FDA a proposal to get approval as a drug or medical device. And so this video game treatment um, is a class two medical device to treat pediatric ADHD. Our phase three trial was a you know, multiple year trial, 20 sites, 350 kids, double-blind, randomized control trial, just like a drug study, and we announced in December that we hit our primary outcomes for attention improvement. Yes. Um, so it was super exciting. I mean, that was like a very, very big deal for us yeah. uh, because, you know, you do those studies and, you know, and there are many, many examples of failed drug studies after $800 million in 12 years of work that fail. I mean, it has happened multiple times over the last three years for Alzheimer's research. And so you hold your breath when right. that when that data is unblinded. Literally, you find out in one moment. It's not like you find that a little bit all the time. It's like, this is what your 10-year journey has been. Oh, gosh. It could be a failure or not. And so we were successful. So that right. was great. And now over 2018, to answer your question, I just want to give a little background. We're now, with the data in hand, moving towards FDA approval mm -hmm. of uh, this uh, treatment for pediatric ADHD, um, if approved, and you know we have reason to be optimistic, but of course there's still a couple more steps in front of us, um, it'll be the first non-drug treatment for ADHD 
Fifty, uh, the first prescribable video game. That's uh, so cool. You know, and, and the first, you know, what makes me most excited is the first of a new category of medicine, this yeah. digital medicine. And so this is this is called a de novo pathway through the FDA because there's no predicate that that it relies sure. upon. And uh, and that's what that's what we'll be doing this year. So badass. I'm so excited. Um, the thing that I'm interested in, I didn't realize you were doing other sort of concurrent trials on depression, Alzheimer's, and other things. So is that still in very early stages? I would say very early stages. Depression is now in phase two trials. Um, we could be advancing to phase three fairly soon. That's maybe, so maybe by end of the year, beginning of next year, and uh, multiple sclerosis is also pretty far, far wow. along. So, yeah, there we're, we're you know building a, a company you know similar design to like Genentech or Pfizer, multiple verticals. We also have a diagnostic arm to use um, closed loop video games, not to change the brain, but just to sample brain activity mm -hmm. in a very sensitive manner. So, yeah, all that is going on uh, in parallel. And are the game like the game engine is the same and the skin on top of it is different or how yeah. different are the games? So, so that is you're, you're right. So all of those studies use the same game engine with different skinnings, different rewards depending on the population, age, and or condition. Um, but Achilles is now looking very close to licensing the second patent from Neuroscape. So it's always confusing when I talk because <laughs> sometimes I'm talking from Achilles perspective which is a for-profit company that grew out of our lab and sometimes I'm talking as the director and founder of Neuroscape which is our center at UCSF so here back at the shop we've become essentially like an incubator yeah. we now have six more patents that describe different game engines some of them use principles from meditation others use principles from music and rhythm we have a physical fitness meets cognitive fitness a game that we call body brain trainer um, we have several in the mindfulness category some use virtual reality some use motion capture we feed more data than just your performance into the closed loop we feed physiological data we feed neural data in real time we do brain stimulation during gameplay to accelerate learning so we try to figure out what works what what has a signal and then where Achilles comes in or it could be other companies then licenses those patents that you know that protectable property is critical to move something into these very expensive development cycles and big large-scale research studies um, and then it goes to the next level so while Neuroscape builds prototypes and does sort of feasibility and mechanistic research Achilles builds products and does mm -hmm. big large-scale you know right before it's out into the world type of research so Achilles is now looking we're very close to licensing our second technology a second patent and then that will move through a healthcare um, pathway of course our other tech like for example a meditation inspired game called Metatrain could go a different pathway it might not be medical it might be direct to consumer maybe education we have a lot of interest in putting our technologies in classrooms or as homework so there's a lot of different pathways it's just Achilles is the furthest along and that one happens to be directed at clinical care so you mentioned VR earlier and I'm wondering if there's any evidence to suggest that a VR experience which you know is more immersive in certain ways than just you know looking at a screen playing a video game is there any evidence to suggest that that would be a quicker or more effective way of rewiring your brain we're doing those research studies now oh cool so we have two studies one on a game called virtual tension another in a game called labyrinth um, both in vr um, labyrinth also uses an omnidirectional treadmill so you can walk and run in vr one is more directed at attention one is more directed at memory but they will both have control groups that are the same game but played um, with a tablet or a desktop to look at what additional benefits we can have from the vr environment that's really cool and so i've walked inside your brain before <laughs> your glass brain mm -hmm. project is that more for just you know giving people an experience of the structure of the brain, what was the intention yeah, so, that? so the glass brain is an integration of MRI and, and real-time EEG. Um, and many of us here have our glass brains. I have mine and <laughs> use it for demo purposes. Uh, it started actually with a friend of mine, Mickey Hart, who's the drummer from The Grateful Dead, yeah. now Dead & Co. And um, we did start it as a way to show people the rhythms of the brain. 
So that's Mickey's fascination with rhythm and, and the beauty of the brain to get people excited about it. But the reason why we were building those algorithms was not just for demo purposes, but we want to be able to obtain very high resolution, both in time and space, information about how the brain is functioning in real time. Why? Because we want to feed this data into our game engines. Because if the game is not just responding to how fast or accurate you are, but literally responding to how your brain processes information, we think it'll be like a surgical approach to fine-tuning those abilities. Uh, that's a hypothesis. But that's why we started working on the glass brain. We didn't need the visualization. We just needed the real-time processing. Okay. The visualization just came because of some of this work that I was doing on public demonstrations and stage presentations. And you know, I presented it at the White House and Congress and South by Southwest. I mean, it's really reached a large, large audience. It's been in you know dozens of museums and documentaries. So it's done its job of like activating people about the brain. But where we are now going with it is to say what is the value of the real-time visualization of what's happening in the brain? Can we interpret it um, in a more meaningful way? Would it allow us to do real-time diagnostics? Could a therapist sit next to a patient and fly through a virtual reality representation of their brain and then press on a virtual dashboard to challenge them and see in real-time how the brain responds and then try something else and I don't know. It's so possible. is this what you're envisioning? Is like in the future, if you go to your psychiatrist or your psychologist, you get hooked up to some kind of VR system or you start playing a video game? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, you know, I like cool. to I like to think about what's possible um, and uh, obviously, you know, what's practical, but I try not to overly burden myself in that in the first pass. <laughs> it's like, what is the future that I can imagine that I want to live in in a decade? And then like go in reverse and say, what are the steps that get us there? Yeah. Um, and, you know, what is the technologies that we're waiting for? Where are the ones that we can start interfacing with now? Lots of opportunity with machine learning and other AI um, algorithms that we are already experimenting with to accomplish that. But yeah, you know, that's one of the ideas is that you could, or you could fly into a representation of your own brain and play a game using your brain signals as, as the game stimuli. I mean, all so of this cool. is awesome. That's so cool. Well, and it's exciting because I think, you know, right now, like RTMS, for example, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation is one of the, the more prominent treatments for rewiring your brain. And it's painful for a lot of people and it's expensive and the idea that a depressed person could go in and play a video game every day for 30 minutes or, or yeah. actually how long does it and take? And they don't go in, they play at home. So, you oh. know, accessibility and real world, um, you know, translation is just so important to us. That's why we use tablets and the uh, Oculus and, you know, motion captures in the Connect and our physiological devices, you know, you could buy on Amazon. We want tools that people could take home, right? We want this to be part of their lives and not always having to go into a clinic for treatments. That's a real opportunity here. Even even bigger opportunities that you could get these type of technologies into places in the world that don't have teachers or, or physicians or, you know, since we all will have wired, uh, you know, Wi-Fi communicating devices right. in the world very soon. Um, and so if you can use these approaches that are also fun to improve function, then the win is just so, so massive. Um, in terms of TMS, we do a lot of TMS research here, but we've recently become much more excited about um, electrical stimulation, not magnetic mm -hmm. stimulation. It's, you can't really feel it. It's, oh, that's cool. It's less... Um, uh, it's it's more subtle. It's more of a modulation. It doesn't cause neurons to fire. It modulates their activity. So the side effects, the risk of things like seizures are, are, are essentially non-existent. And um, it can be applied at home because of that. And so we have research showing that we could stimulate the brain electrically at different rhythms. So TACS, transcranial alternating current stimulation. Mm -hmm. We can match those rhythms to endogenous uh, internal brain rhythms um, such that it can potentiate them. And now we're showing, we had two papers last year, so a lot of work going on now, that we can accelerate the learning curve across an hour of gameplay. The oh. bigger question is, what does that mean? Can we accelerate the transfer of abilities outside of the game into other skills that you need that you're trying to um, you know, increase? And so that's, oh. that's the work that we're doing now on that. That's very cool. And so... Um, 
if somebody were to, you know, let's say six months down the road, however long, this becomes a prescribable video game that people can get from their doctor, yep. psychiatrist, who yep. would prescribe it? Doctor. Okay, physician, cool. You know, a general practitioner, family doctor, psychiatrist, neurologist. And then how much do you have to play for it to be effective? Well, the only information we have on that is is, is based on what the um, phase three trial used as its, you know, experimental design. So in that study, um, the 8 to 12-year-old children with ADHD played for 30 minutes a day, five days a week for a month. Okay. So not an incredibly long dose, um, you know, so sort of like homework when they come home. And, it's uh, so interesting to think of a video game as a dose. It's yeah. just such a cool concept. Yeah. I mean, we get to control our dosing in a much more precise way than we can with drugs and, and know that that dose is being taken and when it's not. Um, and now we're, we're trying to decide when do we redose? Do we um, wait a month? Do we wait a year? And so what, we, what we're building is a data ecosystem that lives around the video game and allows us to track how game treatment is leading to improvements in the real world and to note when we might require a second dose. And so this is still ongoing. You don't, we don't have this all. We don't need it for the FDA approval. We just need to know that we made a meaningful difference in the time after. But obviously, these are the research studies that we're doing now so that we can have more precise medicine. That's super cool. So one thing I can imagine people are wondering is, how do you do all of this? You do <laughs> so much stuff. And that's something that I was impressed with when I met you sort of immediately is you go to Burning Man, you like party with rock stars, you run a lab, you have companies, you do all these things. How do you manage to, first of all, like sleep? <laughs> <laughs> sleep is important. I definitely take sleep seriously. I, I would never claim like, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I think that's actually a stupid statement. Like we need sleep. Neuroscience yeah. has shown very carefully that sleep is critical. And I do sleep. Um, I, you know, I, I am pretty passionate about it, so I work deeply and, um, you know, I guess effectively uh, through years of practice. Uh, so, you know, that's one aspect. But I'd say another is that it it looks like I do a lot of things, and I even do things we haven't talked about, like the venture fund that yeah. I outside, like Jazz and, and others. But um, I really only do one thing. So. I have one voice. I have one message. I don't speak differently on this podcast as it compared to if I was speaking in front of the FDA on a panel or Congress or, you know, I or to fellow scientists as I speak to the public. So that allows me to do a lot. I don't have to switch hats of personalities or messaging. I have one um, voice and also I have one real mission now. I mean, it has lots of, uh, you know, uh, arms to it. But it is one mission of how do we use technology to improve our, our, our how, what, what makes us human, really. Um, improve how we think and how we feel and how we act, how we perceive. Uh, that's all that I do. Um, I always joke with, with, with my, my, my group here at Neuroscape that, you know, when someone, you know, let's say a new postdoc, a new faculty member in our, our, on our team proposes a research idea, um, you know, and I'm thinking, is this something not just, you know, due to the resources of money and to pull it all off, but like, you know, there's only so much time. Is this something that we want to do? Yeah. And I always say, like, I am interested in branches, but I'm not planting a new tree. Right. And so the trick is to figure out, is it a branch or is it, is it a tree? And anyone that's worked with me for a certain amount of time would know instantly how I would respond to that. Uh, but that's, you know, that's it. Like, branches, building this tree is great, but there's no new trees. That's a really great way to put it. And you just seem to be sort of, there are certain people that you meet that have this sort of fixed way of looking at things like these are the possibilities that are out there and you don't seem to be constrained by that at all. Do you have a sense of where that comes from? I don't know exactly. I mean, I feel like I try to approach life with a bit of playfulness um, across everything. And, um, you know, maybe that's why I build video games now. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it, it bewilders me to have colleagues and, and uh, fellow scientists that are just quicker to dismiss than to, I'm not saying accept, but to open themselves to the possibilities. It's, a, it's not very scientific in my mind to think like that. Of course, you always question and, and you 
you know, you test and uh, everything is questioned all the time. But to not entertain ideas is, you know, it's limiting and it'll never allow you to change the world, right? Yeah. And that's in some ways what we're all trying to do, you know, in this field. And so maybe I'm just constantly pushing myself out of my own, uh, you know, boundaries. When, when, when I feel them being created, I just try to break them down. Yeah. Well, you mentioned a couple of times there have been certain circumstances when people have thought you were crazy or you even mentioned frivolous. Um, how do you deal with the sort of pushback from your direct environment? Yeah, I try not to overthink it um, <laughs> in a way when it comes to that, when it comes to people's perception, you know. Um, I, uh, you know, of course I listen, especially if I respect someone. But for the most part, I don't get so caught up in how people view me or view my work or, uh, you know, I, you know, just because I've seen so many opinions change over time. I've had yeah. so many examples. You know, now we have NIH studies that are funded for video game research and we're very close to having a new medicine. Like this was, you know, and people that maybe were like, what is that? Eight years ago are now like, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe I'd like to do that. So I just had enough examples that... Uh, if you lead your life based on other people's expectations or perceptions, uh, you'll never really go very far. I mean, you have to challenge them and, and at some point just let it go and do what makes sense to you. Yeah. So what are you mentioned there are a few other projects, and we don't have time to go into major detail, but what are some other things you're working on that you're excited about? Well, I, one thing that I'm really excited about that we have, I was just trying to think what we haven't talked about. I know I mentioned a lot of things, mm -hmm. but... We, over the years, I became uh, impressed with the idea, and it wasn't really my idea, um, of using our technology to help people who are not suffering a clinical condition. You know, I'm a neurologist, and I was trained, you know, in the medical world, and so as we started creating our tools, even though I started with healthy older adults, I've always been thinking about Alzheimer's disease and all the conditions we talked about. But the idea that we are not effectively educating young developing minds, independent of disease and pathology, just everyone, really um, has become front and center in how I think. Uh, we spend you know, most of what the didactic education system really accomplishes is transferring information content. Now, even in alternative schools, we've embraced skill development. But we have not put a lot of attention into either assessing or improving how brains actually process information. Mm. How does a 12-year-old pay attention in a selective or sustained way? How do they switch these very limited resources where and you know, when they want them, how do they regulate their own emotions? How do they build empathy, compassion, creativity, wisdom? These are not educational priorities as far as I can see. And so Which is really unfortunate. It's it's sort of shocking. It is shocking. When you when you wrap your head around it and horrifying because you know, my view is that as a species, we're, you know, in a crisis stage right now of not having evolved our minds. Um, and it's troubling in, in every every area that I can think about. And so, you know, one of the ways that we might help manage that crisis and, and what I think of as a grand challenge now is how do we improve cognition in everyone, including young people? Um, how do we know how their minds are operating and how we can improve whatever might not be as high as the other abilities so that they could reach their ultimate potential? And so we have a whole education program here now at Neuroscape. Oh, cool. And we have a study uh, supported by the NSF where we have uh, an app that we created called ACE, which stands for Adaptive Cognitive Evaluation, that uses a closed loop to rapidly sample different cognitive abilities in children. Right now, our study is in middle, middle school and actually ranges, um, uh, I guess, from 8 all the way up to 14-year-olds. And what we are looking at first is how the different cognitive abilities that I've been alluding to map on to academic performance metrics. Mm -hmm. We don't fully understand that yet, which is just mine. Right. And then how do we use that data in an actionable way to give um, a treatment of our games, not a treatment in the clinical sense, but just an educational tool to allow each child to improve any ability that's not optimized. 
And so that is something I'm very excited about. You mentioned emotional regulation. Of course, that's, you know, yeah. my area. So yeah. my ears perked up when you said that. What would that look like? Well, one thing that we found, much to my shock, because that's not an area of expertise that I, uh, you know, had. I, my, my focus has really been on perception, attention, memory, um, emotional regulation and depression, anxiety, and the conditions that are um, caused by poor emotional regulation or, um, you know, insufficient um, control of how we process uh, information, you know, now I've come to realize this is really all part of the same thing. Um, we found that treatments with our game that's really this multitasking game that I described that has no effective emotional components at all, actually in our preliminary studies and our pilot work is not just improving cognition in people with depression, but actually the depressive symptoms. Wow. So it's allowing them, even though they might not be aware of it, to more rapidly, this is the hypothesis, more rapidly in process, interpret information in a way that's more under their control. And so when they get caught in these reverberant loops of negatively interpreting every stimuli that floods into their brain, now, even if they're not aware of it, and this is things that occur within hundreds of milliseconds, now a, a, a pause can be created for reevaluation, reinterpretation, and pulling them onto a different trajectory. That's what we're starting to discover. That makes sense. And how is that? So the one thing I have seen that's sort of along this, these lines, I've seen some neurofeedback games mm -hmm. that help with emotional regulation. Um, and I've just seen like a couple of demonstrations used on children. But is this sort of, because those games looked pretty rudimentary. So it sounds like this does a similar thing, but 10x. Or Yeah, you know, a lot of the neurofeedback is not real time. You know, you're, 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 gathering a signal over time. It's not associated with an event. Um, you can't do a lot in that um, experience except just regulate this sort of abstract signal that represents something in your brain. We're, so I hope over the years, we'll show that we can reinvent this um, approach of neurofeedback by taking neural signals and just not having you control them, but having them feed into the experience to guide the reward and the challenge. And then that opens up a whole vast array of possibilities of what neurofeedback can be. So that's another project that we're doing right now. And <laughs> wow. we think it could have lots of advantages on emotional regulation. And that's become you know much more important to me in our research program. It was something that I shied away from just because it was an area of expertise. But now I realize that it, it overlaps because it's about control. It's about controlling how your mind interacts with the world around it, how your mind interacts with, with itself. Um, and so, yeah, I do think it's actually part of our, our research uh, sphere now. Amazing. So I imagine people also want to know how they can be updated on stuff like this. Where yeah. can people find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So, you know, personally, I'm on social media, uh, and I do share a lot on um, Facebook and um Twitter, Adam Gaz, and Neuroscape, which is our center, also has its own social media feeds and has a, um, a mailing list on our website that we are becoming really good at updating. <laughs> um, not, not so much that it'll be annoying, but, you know, a lot of academic mailing lists, if they exist at all, are, you know, ancient and, right. you know, not helpful. But we're, you know, we have a whole communications team. We're really um, motivated to help our work get out to the public, not just through peer review publication, but through sharing, um, through mailing list and, and social media. So, and then Achille, A-K-I-L-I, Achille um, Interactive is, a, is the company that I've been describing. Um, and, and there'll be, there's lots of news on that side about the FDA approval. So you know, those are some of the ways. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'm so excited for everything you're doing. Oh, it was fun. You know, being being friends uh, for a while now and then having like an uh, interaction like this is always really enjoyable to me. Yes. This was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes. You can do it directly on your iPhone from the iTunes app. And if you don't know how to do that, you can just do a quick Google search. There are a lot of articles with step-by-step -step instructions. 
And if you want to learn more about Adam, head over to irismcalpin.com. I've posted a picture of him as well as his bio and links to various projects of his as well as social media. And if you want to hear more from me between podcasts, follow me on Instagram. It's at irismcalpin. I will be back in three weeks with conversation with Joey Selden, the author of a book called Emotions, an owner's manual. And we get into a conversation about some unexpected roles emotions play in our lives and how to create deeper emotional balance. Some of us tend to live more in our heads and can be a bit cut off from our emotions. And some of us tend to find ourselves regularly flooded with emotions. So whichever camp you're part of, she has some really practical tools and wisdom for you. So until then, as always, stay curious.